We are looking at the good book. We got the good theme going here today, right? Um, we are looking into the good book. We uh, are in part seven, if you're just joining us, of uh, we're part six of a seven-part series on the Bible. We've been looking at the Bible's origins. We've been looking at its accuracy. We've been looking at its authority, and uh, we've got a lot of ground to cover in these last two weeks, and especially today. Apologize for the bulletin taco again today. We got a ton of inserts. Thanks to those of you who put that thing together. Um, we have got not just our notes that have 14 blanks that we're filling in today. We also have two more pages of footnotes. So let's dive right in. Um, let me quickly do a quick review of the last five weeks. Let's see if I can do that in less than five minutes. Here we go. Um, no book. This is what we looked at in week one, if you weren't here. No book has been published more times than the Bible. No book has been translated into more languages than the Bible. No book has been read by more people. No book has had a bigger impact on world history. That's what we looked at week one, that the Bible is not just another book. Here are the cliff notes from week two. In week two, we talked about how this one-of-a-kind book has a one-of-a-kind story. We took a look at the origins of the Bible, and one of the things that struck me as we were going through that was how the one-of-a-kind story that our Bible has, it really speaks to our one-of-a-kind God. The very process that he used says a lot about who he is. That was week two. Here's week three. The manner in which the Bible became the Bible is fascinating. Um, and not only that, we have the manuscript evidence. Week three, the Bible is without equal in the ancient world when it comes to the quality and quantity of manuscript evidence. That's how we determine reliability, accuracy, some of these things with ancient documents. And the Bible sets the gold standard in that area. One of the challenges we gave you that week was to consider what if one, just one of the Bible's 66 books was credible witness handed down accurately. Significant. All right, week four. In week four, we looked at how Christianity's most influential leaders, people like Peter, Paul, and Jesus himself, they believed that the scriptures were different than other documents. They believed that this was the word of God. And so here you have these people, if anybody, at least as Christians we believe this, if anyone ever heard from God, it was Peter, it was Paul, it was Jesus, they point to these scriptures as unique in terms of the way they can speak to us. So that was week four. And then there was week five. This is what we looked at last week. The diverse documents included in the Bible are unified in their testimony about Jesus of Nazareth. All right, so that's where we've been. I think I did that in less than five minutes, right? I'm working at it. All right, here we go. Um, now, let's say after, if you've been with us, let's say that you came in, you know, real skeptical about the scriptures, completely understand that. Let's say you came in. I would hope that after these last five weeks, you'd at least be able to say, you know what, okay, I get it. The Bible is not just another book. It clearly is a unique piece of literature. Well, then you might have this challenge. What about the whatabouts? What about all those things? What about all of those teachings that the Bible teaches that appear to be really hard or contradictory with themselves? What do you do about material that appears to be legendary in nature? That's what we're going to look at today. What about the whatabouts? How can a modern, educated, intelligent, truth-seeking person place their faith in the Bible in the face of things like this? Let's take a look at some of these challenges. And this is not the exhaustive list. You could go through the, the Bible and come up with a much longer list. But for the sake of time, here's, here's some examples. What do you do with testimony that appears to defy physical laws and common sense? What do you do with the floating axe heads? What do you do with talking donkeys? What do you do with a sun standing still? And what do you do with this one? What do you do with Jesus physically rising from the dead? 
just kind of do a wink and a nod to say, well, we all know that's just, you know, stories or whatever. Or what do you do with that? Well, here's another set of, of, of challenges. What about the Bible's apparent mistakes and contradictions? If God really did inspire these works, what do you do with things like this? What do you do with Jesus saying the mustard seed is the smallest of all seeds on earth? Was it the smallest seed? I don't think it is. Okay, did Mark, we got Mark here, did he mistake these two characters? Um, did he get the, 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 um, the history wrong in Mark 2.26 when 1 Samuel says something different? Here's some more examples. Did the author of Hebrews, I came across this one when I was reading um, uh, a while back. Did the author of Hebrews place the golden altar in the wrong place? He says it's in the holiest place. Is that what it says in Exodus? Or not, wouldn't be Exodus. So that's what it says in the Old Testament. Uh, nice cover, right, Rob? Right? All right, let's look at this next one. And then what do you do with this? There's just things that are, seem to be out of order in the Bible. Did the cleansing of the temple occur at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry or towards the end? Here's a couple more things that we want to look at. This, and these next ones are on an even more significant level because now we're not talking about details. Now we're talking about doctrines. What do you do with this? How do you reconcile the God of the Old Testament with the God of the New Testament? How can Jesus both affirm, and this happens right in the same passage, he affirms the Old Testament law. He says there shouldn't even be a dot that drops from it. And then he says, I now declare all foods clean. How, do, how, do, how, does that, how is that not contradictory? And then this is huge. Why are there conflicting reports regarding the empty tomb? That last one is especially problematic because the integrity of the entire Jesus movement rests it rises and falls on the historicity of the empty tomb. If Easter Sunday is at the center of our faith, why do we appear to have contradictory testimony in the four Gospels? So all of this and more begs the question that I asked earlier, how can a modern, educated, intelligent, truth-seeking person put their faith in a book like this? How, how do we do that? That's the question, again, that we're going to try to wrestle with. Today, all the questions will be answered. You'll go forth from this place. No. You'll still have questions. But my, my hope is we can at least give you a framework if you don't already have one. At least give you a framework, some more questions that you might want to ask. Um, sometimes, let's start with the simple stuff. Sometimes it's as simple as just taking a closer look. Up here in the front, um, if you're listening to the podcast, I have a table. I have a number of things on the table. One of them is a magnifying glass. Sometimes your problem isn't problematic if you just take a closer look. Let me show you an example of that. If you have your Bibles, let's open up to uh, one of the resurrection accounts. Let's look at what Luke says in Luke chapter 24, verse 1. As we're turning here, I want to let you know if you are visiting here and you don't have a Bible at home, we'd love to give you one today. No strings attached. We have um, a copy. Uh, Several of them on the table right there, table right there. They're there every week. They're there for you. So please take one. We'd love for you to, to have one so you can read it for yourself. All right, here we go. Luke uh, chapter 24, verse 1. This is one of the resurrection accounts. And it says this. On the first day of the week, on very early in the morning, the women, plural, took the spices that they had prepared and then they went to the tomb where Jesus was laid. All right. So in this passage, in this account of the resurrection, we have women, plural, taking the spices that they prepared going to the tomb. Now, this trips some people up because they say, okay, here we have women, plural, but now look at what happens if you look at what John says. So let's turn there. John chapter 20, verse 1. Here's John's account. And this, again, trips some people up. They read this, and they, and they say early the next week, it says, the first day of the week, 
While it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. And so right there, some people go, how can you believe this book when there's conflicting reports? In Luke, you've got women, plural. Here, you've got one. What do you do with that? Well, sometimes it's as simple as you just look a little deeper. Let's just keep reading. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and she said, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we. It's easy to miss that two-letter word. And we don't know where they put him. We, plural. So sometimes it's that simple, but a lot of times it's not, right? There's other times you come across something in the scripture, you're maybe reading it for yourself, and you go, I don't get this. Or maybe someone forwards you a, a video, and you look at that video, and you go, I, I got nothing. <laughs> or maybe you read a book like The Da Vinci Code, and, and, and you look at this, and you go, I didn't know these, these things. Which again, Da Vinci Code, what genre? It's fiction, right? Fiction. Remember that. And, and, or maybe you go to a, a class. You have a, you have a college professor. And that college professor says a lot of things that sure sound convincing. And you can't in your head think of any plausible explanation. What do you do then? That's what we want to try to do today. Um, I have a bookshelf at, at my office devoted to what's called apologetics. It's a, it's a theological word, which means you're, you're giving a defense, a reasonable defense for challenging questions. So I got, a, I got a shelf of books. I brought some of those. That's what I've got on this table right here, some of the books off of that shelf. I, I will bet you a steak dinner or the vegan equivalent that if you have a question, if someone puts a question to you, that's not the first time that question's come up, right? Those of us who've been around the block a couple times, we know this. If you're sitting in class, you know, it's your sophomore college class, right, and the professor says something, and you're just like stunned because you're like, I never heard this before. He or she's not the first person that's raised that question. And there's a whole lot of brilliant people who can offer explanations. Now, to be fair, some of those explanations are only in the category of plausible. But some of those explanations are in the category of compelling. And these books I have up here, I mean, they're not just coming from some Yahoo. I mean, we've got, we've got scholars, scientists, philosophers, professionals who look at these same questions that we all look at, and they say, you know, your problem is not as problematic as it might seem on the surface. So let me give you a couple questions that you might want to ask. If you come across a big problem that you're like, I don't know what to do with this, here's a couple questions that you could ask. The first one is this, and there's a place to write these in your notes. We're going to go fast, so if you're taking notes, write quickly. Your what about, it could be a prescriptive, descriptive thing. We talk about this a whole lot. There's a whole lot of examples in the Bible of people behaving badly. And sometimes people get tripped up because they see what somebody like Samson did and they go, wow, this is this guy that God worked through and look what he did. Don't follow that. Because there's a whole lot of stuff that is just describing bad behavior. It is not prescribing what a person should do. So sometimes your what about could just be that. Here's another thing. Your, your what about could be a translation thing. The original documents weren't written in English. They were translated into English. And so you might be looking at a translation. You're tripping up over some English word. It might not even be a good translation. Or you might have so much baggage with your English word that you might actually be missing what was originally, originally trying to be communicated. So it could be that. It could be this. Your what about could be a forest and the trees thing. 
you could be asking questions about the text that the text's not even trying to make, like that mustard seed thing. Was Jesus' point that here is the physically smallest seed in the universe that ever has been, ever will be? That wasn't his point. And if you're zeroing in on that, you're missing his point. He's talking to first century folks in Palestine. That was their smallest little seed that grew into this big thing. That was his point. And sometimes we can miss the point if we don't zoom out. It could be this. Your what about could be a context in fact, whatabouts are almost always a context thing. And I'm not just talking about context in the sentence. I'm not just talking context in the paragraph. Zoom back from there. Historical context. Some of our whatabouts are the result of we're trying to take something that was said to these specific people this specific time, and we're trying to apply it exactly the same way instead of what was the principle. And sometimes it is exact same way in application. Sometimes it's not. How do you know? You have to know more about the historical context. And then there's literary context. That is huge. Because the Bible isn't just one style of literature, and you don't interpret all styles the same way. Inside the Bible, you have poetry, you have prophecy, you have proverb, you have parables, you have narratives, you have letters, you have history, you have apocalyptic writings, and every one of these different genres requires different interpretive skills. One of my favorite books on this is a simple little book. It's called How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. That yellow insert that we've been including throughout the series, this is one of those. This one does a great job of genre, of just helping you to see, okay, how do you read a parable? How do you read a parable different than a letter? How do you know if it's a parable letter? That type of thing. So sometimes it's a context thing. Another one, here's number five. Your what about could be truth that exists in tension or paradox. I can't count the number of times people said, I can't believe in a God that would allow hell because those are not compatible. Loving God, eternal punishment, those are not compatible. May I present to you that sometimes truth exists that sounds contradictory, but it exists in tension or paradox. And you might say, ah, yeah, you believe that because you believe light exists. Light is physically paradoxical. It, it, it has properties of a particle. It has properties of a wave. It's not supposed to. It does. Do you not believe in light? Right? Or take an emotion like jealousy. I was thinking about that. There are forms of jealousy where this emotion is paradoxical in nature because sometimes jealousy is a mixture of affection and anger. Sometimes jealousy, it, it, it mixes attraction and repulsion. So there are some things that you have to dig into it, but they seem contradictory, but they're actually not. They actually can work together. Perhaps one of your challenges with the Bible has to do with that. All right, number six. Your what about could be a where does it fall in the story thing. This is especially true when it comes to New Testament, Old Testament. There's a whole lot of people that really get tripped up as they try to make the jump from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And this is a whole other series here, but let me just give you an uh, illustration that I found helpful from a guy named N.T. Wright. I included his actual quote in your insert. Here's my summary mashup of it. I think this is helpful. This doesn't answer the whole thing. It's, um, it's an analogy, so it doesn't prove anything. It has its limitations, but I think he's got some truth here. He's talking about how do you, uh, how do you connect the Old Testament and New. He gives this illustration. He says, when travelers sail across a vast ocean, and finally arrive at the distant shore. They leave the ship behind, and they continue 
over land, not because the ship was no good or because their voyage had been misguided, but precisely because both ship and voyage had accomplished their purpose. Christians must never forget the Jewish roots of our faith. However, ship-specific laws no longer define this new community of travelers, not because the laws were bad, but because they were good laws with a specific purpose. I think when you press into things like this, it can help maybe bring some understanding that wasn't there before. Number seven, let's just touch on one more. I could go on with this list, but for the sake of time, let's just touch on this last one. Your what about may reveal your own bias. Sometimes your what about is not about the Bible. Sometimes it's about your bias. And there's a whole lot of folks, they, in fact, everybody, not a lot of us, we all bring our biases to the Bible. And so your bias, your, your, your problem with the Bible not might, might not be that the Bible's not consistent or something like that. It just might be that you can't get past certain things, that you, you have biases coming in. You know, a, a real classic one is the miraculous. You, you might have a bias against the supernatural. So any book, you're not even going to give it a shot if it talks about the supernatural. Well, I, I want to challenge you that there are some brilliant minds, like on this one, a guy named C.S. Lewis. One of my favorite books is a book called Miracles, not a light read. But C.S. Lewis does a great job of challenging that bias that a lot of us hold against the supernatural. And he actually makes a case that it's rational to embrace what we call the supernatural as the Bible describes it. And there's another bias that we have that's, that's frequently put out there. They call it the problem of the evil. People say there cannot be a good God if evil exists. There's brilliant minds, like a guy named Tim Keller, one of my favorite books on this subject, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. He does a great job because he puts this question in the historical context. And he goes, Westerners, we're the only people who have a problem with this. You go back in history, if they believed in a God, they're like, of course a God allows evil. Why would a God not allow evil? We're, we're the most ill-equipped people to even wrestle with this thing. And so he does a very good job of presenting some, a case against that presupposition. So sometimes it's about your biases, not about the Bible itself. And sometimes there's some groundwork to take care of even before you approach the Bible to at least be honest about your biases or to perhaps get challenged in those areas. You know, one of the things I, I say from time to time is if you're looking for a God who conforms to your expectations, you're not going to find him in the Bible. You're not. The, the Bible describes this God whose ways are higher than our ways and whose thoughts are not our thoughts. And this is true for folks who grew up in the church. Sometimes we're the ones often most shocked. What? He forgave that person? What? This person didn't apparently receive forgiveness? What's going on here? God is, is God. Okay, all this to say, all of these seven different questions you could ask, all this to say, most of the problems that most people have with the Bible aren't as problematic as we think they are. Sometimes there's an explanation that is plausible. Sometimes there's an answer that's really compelling. You know? Now, before we bring this teaching to a close, I have this other section I want to talk about, and that's in your notes. As I was working through um, the, the stuff for today, this thought came into my head. Let me see if I can just explain it well. I was thinking about all the people that I, that I know, and, and myself when I was younger, all of the whatabouts that we say keep me from faith. 
You know, I can't believe, I can't believe in, in, I can't trust the Bible because of all these whatabouts, all these whatabouts, all these whatabouts. So I'm going to come over here and I'm going to take this safe position because I can't accept that one. There's too many whatabouts. Do you know what happens if you come over here? Now you have new whatabouts. If you reject the Bible's explanation for reality, now you open yourself up to a whole new set of whatabouts. At least be honest if you do that, right? If you're in this camp, at least be honest. Just like those who are in the Bible camp, we've got to be honest too. We've got to go, yep, that is a whatabout. Got it. But you also have to be honest if you're over here. Just to be consistent. And let me give you a couple whatabouts that you have if you reject the orthodox understanding of the scriptures. Here's a couple you can write in your notes. Alternative understandings of scripture face formidable whatabouts of their own. There's issues related to good and evil. Let's come back to this one. People often offer the existence of evil as evidence against the existence of God. Did you know if you believe that evil exists but God doesn't, there are huge philosophical problems with that because now you've introduced an absolute into a situation where you're saying there's no absolutes. So there's all kinds of physical challenges if you say evil exists but God doesn't. All right? Here's another one. Issues related to the origin, complexity, diversity of life. I'm hoping this in 2015 we, we can have a series that I want to call Theories of Evolution. Not creation versus evolution. I don't think it's that simple. But I want to press into this. In fact, before I forget, inside your bulletin taco, there's a, um, a blue sheet. And that blue sheet is a sermon survey. I would love to hear from you what you would love to hear in 2015. So think about that. Write down ideas. Um, pop it in the mailbox either this week or next. I'd love to hear from you as we're planning. But one of the, one of the series I'd like to teach on is this idea of, the, of life. Because one of the things that your teacher might not have told you is there are tremendous leaps of faith that you have to take if you're going to assume a naturalistic, purely naturalistic understanding of the universe. Huge leaps of faith that people never told me about. All right? So there's that. Here's another one. If you're going to reject Scripture as, as a, a document that, that explains the, the universe and how things are, you've got big issues related to Jesus of Nazareth. Because something happened 2,000 years ago. It was bigger than a nuclear bomb going off in that area. It sent shockwaves through the world. And it's easy to explain the, the church in like the 300s, 400s, 500s, because they had now power and prestige. It is problematic to say the least to explain how this thing, this Jesus movement ever got out of Jerusalem when everything was working against it and the people were turning the other cheek. It doesn't make sense, at least to me. At least, okay, I should say this. At the very least, it's problematic to try to explain history apart from the way the Bible describes the appearance of Jesus. Okay, so there's that. Now, you've also got issues related to compelling personal testimonies. Here's what I mean by this. Skeptics are quick to point out the knuckleheads. They're like, look at that knucklehead over there. They claim to be a Christian. They don't, do, they don't live at all like Jesus, so therefore I'm going to reject the Bible. Okay, fair enough. But what about the non-knuckleheads? Because there's millions of people, millions of people, intelligent, credible, sincere, truth-seeking folks who have some compelling testimonies of things they've experienced, 
things they've seen, things they've witnessed, changes in their own lives. If you're going to reject all of one set of knuckleheads, what do you do with the others? All right? Then there's number five, issues related to your own personal experience. Now, I don't even know many of you, but let me tell you some things about you. Why, when you pray, do you expect that somebody should be listening? Why is that? As hard as you fight it, why do you expect that someone should be listening when you pray? Why do you believe that if there is a God, he should right the world's wrongs? Why do you believe that so deeply? Again, even if you fight it, why do you believe that? That if there's a God, he should right the world's wrongs? And then this one blows me away. Why is it when you study cultures throughout history, why in the world independently did so many of these cultures come up with the idea that killing an innocent will appease a God? Where does that come from? And why is it found all over the world? There are questions like this, issues related to our own personal experience. If, if you're not going to buy into the Bible's explanation, what's your explanation for that? And is it more plausible, is it more compelling than, than, the, than the Christian explanation? And then let me give you just one more, and this one's big. I encourage you to write this down. Write down issues related to your eternal destination. I know I'm going to get accused of trying to be manipulative here, but I don't get that because this is as basic as life gets. How many of you are going to die? Show of hands. Okay. Am I being manipulative here or am I just stating a fact, as factual as you get? That's why I have the hourglass up there. We don't know how long we have. But every person in this room is going to die. Are you willing to bet your eternal everything on your conclusions about the Bible? Are you so convinced of your position that you're willing to stake eternity in what you believe? Are your whatabouts that big? And are your answers to these whatabouts that compelling? That's why we're doing this series. Now, those of you who know me, especially those of you who work with me, you know that I'm not a kind of person that just accepts things on faith really easily, right? I need to own something. I need to understand something, especially things that matter. If I'm going to endorse something for this church, if I'm going to turn people loose on stuff, I mean, if, if, I'm, gonna, if I'm going to trust I need to own things. That's who I am. So you might be thinking, if that's who you are, then how can you trust the Bible? Because you have whatabouts, right? Yes, right. I, there are so many things about the Bible I don't understand. There are so many things about the Bible that do seem contradictory to me. There are so many things about the Bible that I, I, as much as I've tried, I'm like, okay, maybe this is a plausible explanation, but it sure doesn't seem compelling. Then why can I accept and endorse and actually Go all in, all chips to the table. This is it. I'm staking my life, my family, everything on this. Why? If I'm not 100% sure. Because that's how we all do life all the time. And I can't put the Bible in a different category. But the example that I use a lot is the idea of boarding a plane. In a couple weeks, I'm going down for my board meeting, my annual board meeting in Juarez, Mexico. 
and one of the things that I need to do is book tickets, and I book my tickets. I don't understand how that works, especially the part when you comes up and you're choosing a seat. How does that even work? Because while I'm choosing my seat and someone else is choosing their seat, how do I know that they didn't get my seat? All that kind of stuff, right? I don't get how that works, but I have enough faith that I am now planning my entire schedule around a trip where I'm going to be in four, seat 14B or whatever it is. I'm planning my whole life around something that I'm trusting in faith actually happened, that there's a seat waiting for me on a plane. Now, when I actually get to the airport, I'm going to hand them my bag. Here you go. Do I understand how that works? No. I've seen the movies where they have like a picture of the, the bag is going on all kinds of conveyor belts. But I'm always I'm perplexed by this, especially on a layover. When you literally are running from one plane to the next plane, how does my bag get on my plane? When I'm running through the airport, right? How, how, I don't know how that works, but I have enough faith where I can hand over my possessions. Here you go. I have enough faith. And then comes the big one, stepping on the plane. You know, there comes a point where you step off of that little tunnel and you get on that plane. You can't kind of get on the plane, right? <laughs> you got to get on the plane. And as I get on that plane, I walk past this cockpit. And there are gauges, and there are buttons, and there are levers. And then he's got his little iPad now. Like, what in the world does that do? I hope you're not playing Angry Birds while we're, you know, <laughs> flying at 30,000 feet. So I don't get that. I don't understand most of what's going on inside that cockpit. But I have enough faith in the pilot to be able to say, I'm going to put my full weight on this thing. I'm hopping on this plane, and I'm going to trust that it's going to get me to my final destination. We do this all the time with everything. We have enough faith where we make a decision based on faith. And if time is running out, this is one you want to make a wise decision. Now, when it comes to a plane, am I going to get on a sketchy plane with a sketchy pilot? Nope. Maybe when I was younger? Yep, but I got kids now, and I got a wife now, right? And I got you guys now. And so I want to, I want to make a wise decision when it counts. I want to make a wise decision now when it counts. And so I'm not going to get on sketchy plane with sketchy pilots. And when it comes to the Bible, the whole point of this series is to help people realize that you're not putting your faith in a book by some dude who is heading down to Roswell and he claims to have seen Elvis riding a unicorn along the way. This is a different book. This, this, this is why we're spending seven weeks on this. So you, so you can see that, that this is the most thoroughly investigated, most debated, most vetted document in history. Are there people who disagree? Yes, but there's never been a book that has been studied more or researched more or discussed more or written about more. There's never been a document that more people haven't put their full weight on, even if they don't understand everything. That was one of our hopes for this series, that if you were already a person that came in trusting the Bible, that you were able to go, you know what? Even more so than before, my faith is shored up. There's not another book like this one. And then my extra bonus hope would be for those of you who've been maybe on the fence with the scriptures, that throughout this series, maybe some of the false paradigms that have been said or maybe some just information that you didn't have would inspire you, would make you curious to say, I'm going to look into this a little deeper. And as we close today, I want to close with a very specific prayer for, for all of us. Um, and that prayer comes from a, 
really interesting passage of the Bible. It's 2 Kings chapter 6, verses 8 through 16. 2 Kings chapter 6, verses 8 through 16. And here's what it says. Now there's a king. There was a king of this kingdom of Aram. And he was at war with Israel. And while he's at war with Israel, God continued to reveal this king's plans to the prophet Elijah, who was aligned with Israel. Time and time again, Elijah would warn the king of Israel, saying, all right, here's what's going to happen so you can move and you can strategize and all that kind of stuff. Well, this enraged the king of Aram. He summoned his officers and demanded of them. He said, tell me, who's the spy? How in the world does Israel know our moves? Which one of you is telling that king of Israel? And one of his officers said, hey, it isn't us. It's not us. It's Elisha the prophet. He's in Israel. And he tells the king of Israel the very words that you speak in your bedroom. Well, the king ordered, go find him. Find where he is so I can send men and capture him. The report came back. He's in Dothan. So the king of Aram sent horses and chariots and a strong force there. They went by night and they surrounded the city. When Elijah's guy got up the next morning, he looks out and there's an army with horses and chariots surrounding the city. And he says, ah! That was my translation. See, sometimes translations aren't as literal. And he, and, and he says, what should we do? And Elisha says, don't be afraid. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And, and the servant's like, okay, one, two. So Elijah says, let me pray for you. And here's, here's the specific prayer I want to pray for us today. Elijah prayed, open his eyes that he may see. Open his eyes that he may see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and the servant looked, and then when he looked, he saw the hills. And they were full of horses and chariots of fire. He saw this heavenly army. And in my 20s, I thought I'd be able to convince people with my words, and I've, I've learned I can't do that. I, I want to try to do the best I can to help with some roadblocks and things that you might have, some stumbling blocks. I'll do my best. Um, but I found that more than anything, it, it requires an open heart, an open mind on your part. God won't force his way into your mind. He won't force his way into your, your life. It takes an open mind, open heart, and then it takes the Holy Spirit to um, open our eyes that we may see. So to, let's pray to that end as we close here today. Let me pray for us. Father, first of all, before we get to that, I do want to apologize, Lord. I, I am sorry for all the stumbling blocks I put in, in people's way because of the way I may live my life or the words that I use that bring up defensiveness rather than um, a real dialogue. And so, Lord, I, I'm sorry for that. I pray um, knowing that you are greater than my weaknesses. Um, and so, Holy Spirit, we pray now that you would open our eyes that we may see. If you're able to come to that place of humility, would you just pray to God, um, whether it's silently or even aloud, open my eyes that I may see. Lord, would you open our eyes and open our minds and our hearts that we may see. Lord, help us to see this book for what it really is. Help us to see all its humanity. Help us to see the imperfect people who are trying their best to write these things down and pass them down to other generations. 
But Lord, help us also to see that you inspired every one of these words. There's another contradiction, an apparent contradiction, another paradox. I don't know how that is, but it's there, and help us to see it. That every word there is God-breathed, that, that you are at work and you're alive in these words, in these stories, in this history, in this poetry. Help us to see it, even if we just catch a glimpse. Lord, draw us deeper and help us to see these truths and help us to see the context and help us to see all these things. Open our eyes to the wonder of this book that, that has not just spoken to this generation, but to every generation that came before, every generation that will come after. This book that has spoken to people on every continent, through every time. People that has spoken to every culture and race. To, to, it's spoken to the wise. It's spoken to the simple. It's spoken to children. It's spoken to the elderly. It's spoken to, to those who are ambitious. It's spoken to those who aren't. It's spoken to every can speak to every person. Help us to see that. And then specifically, Lord, we pray that you'd open up our eyes enough that we could take that big step of faith where we could put our full weight onto the scriptures and trust them in all circumstances for everything. And Lord, as we go forth from this place today, those of us who have put our trust in you, we dedicate ourselves fully to you. We ask that this um, week you would open our eyes that we may see, that we may see the needs around us, that we may see the opportunities around us, that we may see the people in our lives that um, you would have us to reach out to, that we may see the things that you would have us to, to correct with your help. Lord, we pray that you'd open our eyes that we may see. Lord, we also take our offerings here now and we dedicate them to you. We ask that you would consecrate them and use them for your good and perfect purposes right here and all around the world, Lord. So we dedicate all that we are and all that we hope to be to you. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Have a great, great week.